invite you again then to take your Bibles, if you have them, and I hope you do. 1 Corinthians, we are still in chapter 12. Of course, we'll show the text on the screen as well, if all goes well. Um, but we want you to be looking at your Bible, because we're here to present the Word of God to you. Remember this, the main, the primary purpose for our being here is for you to understand the Word of God. Because we want you to receive it for what it is, the Word of God and not the Word of man. And so we are continuing with our ongoing exposition of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. In fact, this is message number 30, believe it or not. Time does not allow us to review the messages we've already given, even our last message. Other than to say that the apostle is continuing to give specific instructions as to how to deal, how to correct specific problems in the Corinthians church. Now, get some implications from that. First implications, churches have problems. Second implications, the problems caused by people in the church. Isn't that something? Third implication is that Paul corrects the problems. He deals with them. He confronts them head on. He doesn't just let them go by and say, well, God will work it out. I'll pray about it. Mm -mm. In fact, you look at this book very carefully with Paul. One of the things that's missing is Paul emphasizes, I'm praying for you. You read Paul's other epistles. He always talks about how much he's praying for, for the believers as he's writing to. But you don't find it too much in Corinthians. Why? I believe it's because Paul says, hey, there's no time for you to pray. It's time for you to work. Paul says you're behaving like unsaved people. He's dealing with problems in the church. We must face them. And that's what he is doing here. Now, he is now, in this chapter, dealing with the gross Misuse of spiritual gifts and assemblies of the believers at Corinth who were living fleshly lives. It's another thing. Paul, as we saw last time, were um, quite commendable on the Corinthians, telling them that they lacked no gifts. In fact, they had all the gifts. And they had them to the maximum. But yet, they were fleshly. They were carnal. They were walking like unsaved people, even while they were supposedly using the gifts. You see how that impacts Christian living and the idea of hypocrisy in the churches and Paul confronts directly. Now, it's important for you to see the flow of this book too, by the way. And if you haven't uh, gotten the rest of the earlier messages, I encourage you to do so because we've... Because we're building on the truth uh, sequentially. Paul argues very logically. So it's important for you to see the sequence. Now, if you haven't um, had the opportunity to, to hear the other messages, I encourage you to go on our website. It's www. How many W's are that? www.calvarybible.org.bs you go on the site, you'll see there's a little computer there that says sermons, I think. 
and you click on that, it takes you to a sermon player. And we have all of our messages on there. In fact, this message right now is, if everything is working right, is being, is being uh, streamed. People can see it. Uh, people are watching it. All right. So you can go to the site and uh, you can get the messages. Uh, there were 29 other messages on this. We're defining the spiritual gifts. That's where we are now in chapter 12. So if you have your Bibles, turn to that passage. We gave a definition of spiritual gifts. And this is how we define spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are special spiritual abilities graciously and sovereignly given by the Holy Spirit on behalf of Christ as head of the body to each member of his body for the purpose of advancing both individual and corporate spiritual maturity or Christ-likeness through the interdependent loving exercise. That's a mouthful, but every word in that definition has a meaning. Every one of them. We especially noted that um, the purpose for the gifts. By the way, someone has said that gifts are the languages by which members relate to one another. Gifts, spiritual gifts, are the language by which members relate to one another. But we especially emphasized last time the fact that spiritual gifts are given for the purpose of advancing both individual and corporate spiritual maturity or Christ-likeness. In other words, they're not given primarily to benefit the one who has the gift. They're given primarily for the person who has the gift to benefit others. In other words, you need my gift and I need your gift. It's a mutual sharing of these spiritual gifts. They are to be ministered mutually and freely among believers, especially within the context of worship service, worship service and fellowship amongst the people of God. And that's what Paul is dealing with in this epistle. How the gifts are to be manifested when the people of God gather together for worship, for service, or for fellowship. When spiritual gifts are administered the way God has planned them to be administered, spiritual growth will take place. If they are not, spiritual growth will not take place. Now please listen carefully to this because I don't think we understand the nature or the essence of the church as much as we should. You could have a finely tuned, finely oiled organization called the church. You can have all of the managers in place. You can have all of the sub-managers in place. You can have everything just running properly. And it could run smoothly. You can have all the ministries going. You can have the place filled with people. But there'll be no spiritual growth. There could be no spiritual growth. In spite of all of that. Why? Because the church grows as individual members minister to one another the gift that God has given. Not human abilities, but spiritual abilities. And that's how we grow. That's why in this context the church is called a body. Because the organism is emphasized. The organic aspect, 
not the mechanical, not the organizational, but the organic act aspect. And we'll see that as we go down further in this chapter. Paul is trying to show the believers that they need one another. And no matter how good your gift may be, no matter how popular it may be, other members have gifts that are important and vital for your spiritual growth. You cannot shut them off. You cannot stop them. You cannot be the only one doing it. That's why I keep telling you, and you know we're trying to find ways around it, but that's what culture and tradition does, unfortunately. It puts us in boxes and makes, us, makes it very difficult for us to get out. You see, for the next two hours, I'm sorry. For the next 30 minutes or so, I'm the only one going to be speaking. You're going to be sitting. I don't think that's the way the church is supposed to operate. Unless after that time, we give you time, you give me opportunity to share, to ask questions, to mingle, and to be able to stimulate, or as the King James Version says, to provoke one another unto good works. You see, that's how the church is supposed to work. But traditionally, we have gathered in such a way that we prevent the church from growing. You cannot grow just by coming here to hear someone speak. I don't care how charismatic they may be. I don't care how well versed they may be. I don't care if they're really handsome as I am. You still would not be able to grow only by listening every Lord's Day to someone speak. You need the person sitting next to you if they believe is Christ. Person in the back of you, person in front of you. We need that kind of mingling, of fellowshipping together to, sh- to share one another's gifts. That's how the body is being designed. And that's why I am convinced the body isn't growing. Because the members who are supposed to be doing the work were the members. See, unfortunately, we've got the idea that the only people who are supposed to work are the people you pay. You see... But you read the scriptures, the ministers are you guys who are supposed, who they're sitting in the seat. You're the ministers. We are supposed to equip you to do the ministry. And that's what Paul is trying to show here throughout this chapter as we will see. Now, I believe therefore that spiritual gifts are the spiritual resources for accomplishing the mission of the church to believers. The mission of the church cannot be accomplished unless each believer is functioning the way God has designed them to function and using the gift God has given them to you. The church will not accomplish its purpose. You could give, you could pray, you could fast, but if you don't exercise the gift that God has given you, there's not going to be any growth. Not a growth that comes from God. Yes, you might have a growth that comes from man but not a growth that comes from God. And what we're looking for, according to the word of God, is a growth that comes from here, a growth that comes from God. Now, Paul enumerates several gifts in this passage. There are much, many more gifts, but he enumerates, I think, nine of them, and we'll be looking at them as we go along. We're not going to be dealing with all of the gifts right now, because then we'll be turning our message into a topical message. But we want to do an exposition. We'll be dealing with the things that Paul deals with in this particular text. And he deals with these gifts in verses 8 through 11 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This is what that passage says. In fact, why don't you read it from his, I believe it's on the screen. Why don't you just read these verses together and Read it out a little loud, please. Ready? Let's go. Four to one. 
another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. That's a magnificent passage of scripture. Now we have already defined the first of these gifts, the first two of these gifts listed here. And we have determined in our last message that they are from a purely biblical perspective, primarily related to the reception of and the proclamation of divine truth. The apostle calls them the deep truth or mysteries of God. In other words, when we looked at these particular gifts here, gifts of message or word of knowledge and message or word of truth, we saw that this is the only place that are mentioned in Scripture in that way, that phrase. Nowhere else. And so if you want to understand what it means, you've got to go to the word to see how, how these words are used in order to get some idea of what the gifts mean. Now, unfortunately, that's not done usually. We put our own meaning onto it. But what we have done, we've gone to the scriptures, we've, saw, we've gone to other places where Paul uses the same words, wisdom and knowledge, and use them together, and to see what he meant by them. And we've come up with, is a purely a biblical uh, definition of, this, of these two gifts, word of knowledge and word of wisdom. Any other definition is man's definition. If you cannot go to the scripture and show that this is what the scripture says, it's not biblical. Now, we could argue all we want, but that's the way it is. If you want to get a biblical definition, you've got to go to the Bible. Isn't that right? But we haven't done that today, and we'll see that in a moment. Now, the word or message of wisdom, we defined as this. The special spiritual ability that enables one to understand direct revelation concerning the deep things of God. And we showed you the scripture that backs this up. And then we have the word or the message of knowledge, which we define based on scripture, the special spiritual ability to apply the truth of divine revelation to specific situations through the spirit of God. And so we totally, absolutely reject the popular notion and so calmly seen on TV that these gifts have to do with being able to see, to diagnose, and to cure physical illness or maladies of folk that the so-called healer has not even seen or spoken to anywhere in the world. Once you have your TV or radio, though, you're okay. See, I believe this is an abuse of the Word of God. I believe that this is the demonstration of individuals, and I know this is judgmental, but I believe it's based on the Word of God, who is seeking filthy lucre, using gifts that God has given them to make profit for themselves. But because there's nowhere in Scripture, nowhere you, you get that kind of an idea that the word of knowledge says that I can tell that somebody is sick, and therefore, because I know that I'm saying now, I can, I can pray for you to heal. Nowhere is that endorsed in Scripture. Nowhere, nowhere, nowhere. And I challenge anyone, anywhere who's listening, or right here now, to show me anywhere in Scripture where that is used in that fashion. Now, a secondary application of these gifts, though, may uh, be 
applied to the diligent student of the Bible who studies the already given revelation, that's what we have in scriptures, in order to glean truths, as Jesus says, both old and new, from the treasure chest of God's word. In other words, today as the student studies the word of God, depends upon the spirit of God, God illuminates his mind, causes him to understand the revelation of God, then enables that person to share it in one form or fashion. That's a secondary application. But the primary application is when those folks receive direct, before the Bible was written, direct revelation from God and then was able to proclaim it. But let's go to the third one now because I'm catching up. Now I begin the message for the day. So the time starts right now. The third gift mentioned in this passage is faith. Notice what it says. It says to another, faith by the same spirit. Now, do not overlook the word another. The word another in verse 8 refers to the word of knowledge. Remember, we pointed this out, which meant another of the same kind, meaning that the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge were of the same kind, the same character, the same nature. They went together. So when he says another, it's another of the same kind when it came to the word of knowledge and to the word of wisdom. But now, when you come to verse 9, you have another, another. This is not another of the same kind. This Greek word means another of a different kind. And so you cannot interpret something that is of a different kind the same way as though it was the same kind. You understand what I'm saying? Another of a different kind is different from another of the same kind. Is that right or wrong? Right. Well, Paul is saying now in verse 9 that this gift of faith is of another kind, another nature, another essence than the first two he was talking about. If you recall, we noted that wisdom and knowledge had to do with the mind and the intellect, whereas faith has to do more with trust, confidence. And so my definition of the gift is this. The gift of faith is a divine ability to act on God's word with absolute confidence that he will do as he promised. In other words, absolute confidence in the faithfulness of God. That's the gift of faith. All right? It's not faith in faith. Please remember that the people who are teaching today that you have to have or you can have the faith of God. People teach that. And if you have the faith of God, you could do what God does. Because when God created something out of nothing, he did it through his faith. And if I have his faith, I can do what he did. I can call things into being that were not there. And that's what people are teaching today. So, again, ladies, singles, you want a husband? You can call him into being if you have the faith of God. All you got to do is tell him how tall, how fat, whatever you want. You just say it and it comes like that. That's not the gift of faith. All right? Faith of God is absolute confidence in the word of God. All right? Faith always rests on the word of God. Because the word of God comes from God. And God cannot lie. Isn't that right? So in the final analysis, 
is faith, absolute faith in the faithful God. So I look at it as a divine ability to trust God to meet specific needs and perform specific tasks, even when the facts seem to dictate otherwise. In other words, the person without this, without this gift, without this gift. Now, all of us have a measure of faith, but not all of us have the gift of faith. The gift of faith goes to a different level. You understand what I'm saying? George Mueller was a man of faith. He would sit down with his hundreds of kids there with no food on the table and give thanks for it. And before he says amen, the door knocks and people comes in. I'll have a heart attack doing that, something like that. See, that's, that's the gift of faith, all right? A fourth gift is, now I'm not going to deal with all these entails because this is picked up later. A fourth gift is the gifts of healings. Now, several things must be noted here. And again, as we go through this, it's going to show you how careless we are many times in reading the Word of God. Several things must be noted here that is often not uh, looked at when we speak about these things. First of all, the word used for another here means another of the same kind. So this gift here is similar to the gift of faith. In other words, this gift is going to involve faith. It's very similar. All right? It means that the gift mentioned is of the same character as of the gift of faith. In other words, it is related to and involves absolute trust and confidence in God and in his word. Meaning... It never goes contrary to the word of God. So this miracle or this healing that we can look never goes contrary to the word of God. Because it has to do with the idea of faith, which is confidence in the word of God. James' word to the church elders, remember in James 5.15, comes to mind here. Remember what he says? The prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. Didn't he say that? The prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. That's what he's talking about here. But secondly, in the original writing, the the gift of faith is really in the plural. It really reads, I'm sorry, the gifts of healings. It really reads in the original, the gifts of healings. It isn't just the gift of healing as there's only one gift that takes care of all kinds of healings. That's not it. In the original, it's the gifts of healings, indicating that there are different gifts for different kinds of healings. Did you ever think of that? No, when we think of a healer, he could heal anything, from a broken toe to a broken head. But according to the scriptures, it's gifts of healings. And remember now, the word of God, every word is inspired, right? Every word, and plurals and singular, are very important in Scripture. You remember Paul arguing about Jesus Christ, the promise. He said, remember when the promise was given to Abraham, Isaac, and so on. He didn't say to seeds. He said what? To seed. He was arguing a major doctrinal point based on a singular use of a word. You see how important it is for us to study the Bible diligently? The same thing here when it comes to the gifts. It's the gifts of healings. Now, I wish I had time uh, to go into all of this. This this could actually mean that you could have someone with a gift of healing 
who might be able to heal me of my flu, but not of my cancer. I might have to get another healer in to heal me from my cancer. You understand what I'm saying? That's the import of this passage here. It's in the plural. And so my definition is this. This is the divine ability to affect immediate healings of various kinds. Physical, emotional, or spiritual. Of various kinds. But not all kinds. Depending on which gift you have. In other words, not all with this gift or gifts can heal all types of illness. You understand? That's the text. Now, these gifts, by the way, are specifically identified as an apostolic gift that was listed to confirm and validate their authenticity as an apostle. We cannot overlook this fact. For instance, let me read you this passage in Acts. When Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why do you gaze at us, as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? Now notice, he's trying to show, hey, I'm not the source of this miracle. Alright? The God of Abram, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered up and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life. Now notice this, the one whom God raised from the dead. Notice, a fact to which we are witnesses. He's tying in their identification as apostles with Christ, of Christ with their healing ability. In other words, this proves what I am saying, that I am an apostle of the one that you killed, but God raised from the dead. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you. He is showing that this was a validation of the fact that they were an apostle of this resurrected Christ. It's very clearly spelled out in Hebrews chapter 2. The writer says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? He's talking about the salvation that's presented in the word of God. After it was at first spoken through the Lord. Notice now, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. That's the apostles. God also bearing witness with them. Notice, God bearing witness with them. How? Both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. That is being said in reference to the apostles. Listen carefully. There's nowhere in scripture where it says that every member of the body of Christ can heal the sick, speak in tongues, or raise the dead. These were apostolic virtues or abilities given. When were the apostles called apostles? After Jesus had called them from the, amongst the disciples, brought them with himself, and then he gave them power. And then he said, these, who are these? These to whom he gave power to cast out demons, heal the sick and so on. 
these he called apostles. And in the book of Hebrews, all of the healings has to do with the apostles. When you go to the book of Acts, you'll find that all kinds of miracles and wonders were done. By whom? In Acts chapter 4, it's very clear. By the apostles. By the apostles. Read it very carefully, you'll see that. It's only those who were closely associated with them, like Silas and so on, who were ever identified with those kinds of healings. You'll find nowhere in scripture where you have believers in general doing these would be called miracles and wonders. And I challenge anyone to see any difference when it comes to that. In other words, the gift of faith is an essential part of the gift of healings. They were used by the apostles to authenticate the gospel and their apostleship, never to promote themselves. In fact, they actually run away from, from uh, recognition. Whenever anything happened, they said, get away. No, no, no. We don't want the credit. The credit goes to Jesus Christ. A fifth gift is that of the effecting and working of miracles. This is also a plural gift. It's the gifts of miracles. The translation actually is powers rather than miracles. It's the effecting or the working of powers. The ability to perform miraculous events. This may indicate that those with this gift may have the divine ability to affect certain types of miracles. In other words, they may not all have the same gift to do all the same miracles. It's the same way with the gifts of healings. Some could do some miracles, but not others. In other words, remember, who is responsible for giving the gifts? The Holy Spirit. And he gives it to the ones that he chooses to give it to. This is what happens here. And by the way, the word another, what another do you think that is? Same kind. It's another of the same kind. Because the working of the miracles and the working of uh, the healings are of the same nature. And so my definition is, it's a, uh, a divine ability to authenticate the ministry and message of God through supernatural interventions which glorify him. That's how I define the working of miracles. Now, as we've seen in Hebrews 2, it associated this gift specifically as an apostolic gift. Notice what it says, verse 4. God bearing witness with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. It's very specific. This was to the apostles. It doesn't say this of anyone else at all. Now, there's a sixth spiritual gift. And that's the gift of prophecy. This is one of the gifts, by the way, that was causing a problem at Corinth. Actually, it was not the gift that was causing the problem. It was the people who had the gift. Gift people is always the problem. Now, the word another here is another of the same character. In other words, it's a character, it's the same character as those of the gifts of healings and the working of miracles. This seems to indicate that they are all related to the affirmation, the validation, and confirmation of the apostolic office as being authentic messengers of Jesus Christ. In other words, these gifts are of the same nature, of the same character. The word prophecy simply means to speak forth the word itself, or to communicate the revealed, the revealed word and will of God. Now, when it is used in connection 
with prophecy. It has the idea of informing, giving information, as well as bringing about conviction as a result of that, individ- of that information that leads to a change of life, a change of direction. Information given directly by God, communicated to the prophet, to people, in order to bring about conviction so their lives could be changed. That's the context of the word prophecy. Now, it can have both a future and a present context. Both a present and a future context. It may have both uh, as far as their relevance is concerned. Now, with regards to the church, though, and that's we have to see it now, because Paul is talking now with prophecy within the church, not outside the church. With regards to using the church, the focus and emphasis is upon the current or present time rather than the future. So Paul is talking about one who has a special spiritual ability to receive revelation from God, to communicate that revelation to others in a way they understand it that will cause them to change their life. And so my definition of this gift of prophecy is its divine ability to receive and communicate the will and word of God for the edification of the body of Christ and to authenticate the presence of God in their midst to unbelievers. Now we're going to validate this from this text as we go on. But because we're not going to do it now because we haven't come to that point yet. Because we're doing a consecutive exposition rather than a topical one. Now, there's another gift. And that's the gift of distinguishing or discerning of spirits. If you recall, Paul actually began his discussion with the need for this gift. Remember? Look way back in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He started off with the need to be able to determine the source of the information that you hear coming from people who are worshipping. Whether it's coming from demons or whether it's coming from God. Notice that this gift follows the gift of prophecy. I got it very carefully. Why? Because it is needed to determine the source of so-called divine revelation. You have somebody say, I have a revelation from God. All right. Paul says, in the church, the people to tell you whether you're telling the truth or you're lying. They could discern the source of your information. Again, it's distinguishing or discerning of spirits. Again, it is in the plural. And this indicates an ongoing ability to determine the spiritual source behind various spiritual manifestations in the church. And Paul was dealing with that. Paul was saying that the individual sitting in Corinth who can look at what happened and determine whether or not it's coming from God or it's coming from demons, it's coming from yourself. There are people who are able to determine that. You have gifts. And that's what Paul says is needed. And so I define the gift of discernment in this way. It is the divine ability to discern the spiritual source of both truth and error. Both truth and an error. Now here's something that's a little different in, with this gift. This appears to be an ability that is needed by all believers at all times. 
For instance, later on in chapter 14, when we'll deal with this in detail, he says, let two or three prophets speak, and let the other pass, what? Judgment. Let the other discern. In other words, this was a time when the prophets got up and said, I got a message from God. Now, we'll see one of the problems was, they had many of them doing that, and all of them want to talk at the same time. Paul says, only three. He says, now, the others will discern whether or not what you're saying is really from God. Now, isn't that something? That's what you all are supposed to be doing right now. With me. Who's the source of this information that I'm passing on to you? Is it God's word? Is it demons? Or is it demon Lee? You see? Brad, you, you, you shake your head? Brad? No, that, that's true. That's what you all are supposed to be doing. Discerning. Trying to understand. It's supposed to be like the Bereans to check out. He even checked out Paul. These prophets were saying, I am a prophet. Today, they say, I am an apostle. And once they say an apostle, you can't say nothing against them. That's not true according to the word, though. The word says you discern. He goes on. First Thessalonians 5. It says, do not quench the spirit. He's talking about what's going on in the meeting. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. Because, you see, people were coming to the point now where so many of these people getting up and talking, nobody can understand. They didn't want to hear anybody anymore. So Paul says, no, no. Do not despise prophetic utterance, but examine everything carefully. That's discern. Hold fast to that which is good. In other words, eat the meat. Spit out the bones. That's what he's saying here. First John 4.1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. See, we got to get in tune with the spirit world again. Everybody who stands up here to do something has a spirit behind them. You ever thought of that? Everyone who gets up here to do anything got a spirit behind them. Is that the spirit of God? Demonic spirit? Or it could be your own, it could be your own spirit. But we got a spirit who is directing us, who is controlling us. You have to be able to determine which spirit that is. Test the spirits. See whether they are from God. Why? Because many false prophets have gone out into the world, even back then. What do you think about today? How many men who you hear would be able to pass the biblical test when it comes to their message, much less their lifestyle? Revelation 2. I know your deeds, this is Jesus speaking, and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot endure evil men. Now you say, I wish that could be said of churches today. We have churches who are enduring evil men. You see? These people here did not. I know you cannot endure evil men. Notice now. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles. Man, let's do that. And they are not. 
You have found them to be false. He's talking not to other preachers, mind you. He's talking to the people in the pew. Now, how do they do this? Well, let me give you one suggested answer. Hebrews chapter 5. Solid food is for the mature. Who, because of practice, notice that word? You come out here, you see the choir sing, you see the musicians play. You think that's the first time they did that? They practice, right? They practice. They practice. And the reason why many people today in the scriptures are not able to discern truth and error is because we don't use the word of God. We don't practice it. Notice what it says. Solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Trained. You know it. Automatically it comes. Why? Because you know the word of God. However, it appears that those with the gift of discernment of spirits have a special divine ability to do it easier, quicker, and more accurately than those of us who don't have the gift. And perhaps those who have the gift don't have to study as hard as I do. Or as you may have to do. Because they have the gift. You see, to be able to discern truth from error. Now, as we shall see, this was one of the gifts that was also urgently needed to be exercised properly in the church at Corinth. And it needs to be exercised at Calvary Bible Church as well. See, that's why as elders, we have a responsibility for protecting you from false teachers. That means, that's why we have a policy here. And I don't know if it's always followed. Uh, we have a policy here. No speaker from the outside should address any class or any group here unless it's approved by the pastoral board. Why? Because we have a responsibility of protecting our people from error. Now you may say, oh my, why, you all think you all know everything, eh? No, but we know enough to know that we're responsible to keep error out of the church. You see? And so that's a responsibility and obligation that we have. Paul moves on to mention an eighth spiritual gift. I want to finish up before we go. He says, there's various kinds of tongues or languages. Again, the plural are used here. And this probably indicates languages varied with the recipient of the gift. And this is quite important. Again, the word another here is another of a different kind. This is different than the gift we just looked at. It's different in nature than the discernment of spirits. This may be emphasizing that whereas discernment was primarily concerned with the mind and intellect and the understanding of the content of the, the, the message, in this case, the various kinds of languages included, at least at times, the actual putting aside of understanding and experiencing a kind of ecstasy or trance. Yeah. There were times when those who spoke in, 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 in tongues, they were in another world. The understanding wasn't there. No one was understanding. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14. See, sometimes we miss this out. So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. That's the primary purpose for gifts. The edification of the church. Therefore... Let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, notice now, 
My spirit prays, but my mind is what? My mind is unfruitful. Ain't nothing. I ain't learning nothing. My intellect is not touch. It don't benefit the intellect at all. Look at verse 19. In the church, I desire to speak five words with what? In a tongue. Which could not be understood. Either by the speaker or the hearer. He says, now listen man. When I'm speaking in a tongue, nothing happens to my mind. It's blank. I don't learn nothing. I don't understand nothing. It's useless. When there's no interpreter. Now when there's interpreters, it's a whole different story. But when there's no interpreter, it's waste of time. It's useless. It don't affect my intellect at all. I'm not learning nothing. Sorry you're listening. I can speak to you. You're not learning anything. He contrasted with prophecy as well. Notice what he says in verse 22. So then tongues are for a sign. Now this is the word of God. Who are the, the, who is the sign for? Not for those who believe. Now in a church, who are you supposed to have there? Isn't this amazing? Tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. To use the generic, it says it's for an evangelistic purpose outside the church, not for an edification purpose inside the church. But notice, prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. That's edification. It's teaching the words could be understood. And so my definition of this gift is, it is the divine ability to speak a language that the speaker has not naturally learned. Now we're going to go later on to talk about this. Some people like to talk, oh no, no, this is the gift that the angels speak. This is the tongue that the angels speak. Only time, only people understand is up there. According to just about every use of this word, that is not true. That is all made up. Beautiful illustration of what it means for people to speak in tongues and to others understand it is the day of Pentecost. The disciples got up and they spoke. And what did the people say? We heard it in our own language. Who was speaking it? The disciples who didn't know the language. They were given the gift of the language of the people who were there so they could understand. And that's what it means. The ninth spiritual gift is interpretation. Now remember, look, it comes right after the gift of tongues because you need an interpreter. All right? Again, it's another of the same kind, meaning the same gift in nature as the gift of languages. They go together as the gift of wisdom, the gift of understanding. One is dependent upon the other. But may be exercised by different individuals. That's why it follows the gift of speaking in another language. And so Paul's major focus in chapter 12 to 14 is to, con- is to correct the misuse of the gift of languages. Listen to what he says in chapter 14. And this is where we can get in all the trouble when we get to chapter 14. He says, if anyone speaks in a tongue or another language than his or her own, 
It should be by two or at the most three. And each in turn. And let one interpret. Did you understand that? If there is no interpreter, let him what? Let him keep silent. You know, we like to talk about women keeping silent in the church. Well, here's somebody else who's supposed to keep silent in the church. If there's no interpreter, let him keep silent. You have the gift of tongues. Ain't nobody interpret. Shut up. Don't just say the women supposed to be quiet. Let him speak to himself and to God. In other words, meditate silently without saying anything and confusing anybody. And so Paul closes off this section with the following explanation. Verse 11. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. This shows that God and God alone, the triune God, is the, is the one who is behind and has the uh, 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 true spiritual gifts. So these nine different spiritual abilities, all with different or diversified functions, yet the mastermind of them all is the triune God. And he brings all of the results of all of the gifts as they are manifested by the Spirit of God into one united purpose of edifying the people of God and glorifying the triune God. And so we can state the principle this way. Spiritual gifts are both energized and sovereignly distributed by the Holy Spirit. Or put in another way, spiritual gifts are not given by request or desire, but by the sovereign choice of the Holy Spirit. He is the one who gives it. Paul has taken time to list some of the spiritual gifts that was playing a part in the disorderly and chaotic situation that occurred when the fleshly carnal Corinthian Christians met for worship and edification. Paul seems, though, to be dealing with the opposite of the situation that most of us are familiar with. In fact, I would dare to say, he seems to be dealing with the opposite of the situation here at Calvary. You see, the problem back then was the overuse, in fact, the zealous overuse of spiritual gifts. Today, our problem is the lack of the use of spiritual gifts. And there is no zeal to try to do it. You say, why am I saying that? I say that to say this. We tend to apply what's happening at Corinth to them charismatics out there. Them Pentecostals out there. Them holy rollers out there. You know, we separate ourselves. That's the people over there that Paul talking about. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Don't fool yourself. Yeah? Don't be hypocritical in thinking that that's all he's talking about and this don't apply to you. What is the bottom line message here when it comes to gifts? The bottom line emphasis here is that spiritual gifts are given by the Holy Spirit in order to bring about the spiritual maturity of the body as a whole. That's the bottom line. Failing to use them to accomplish this purpose is just as bad as using them improperly. You understand what I'm saying? 
Failing to use them is just as bad as using them improperly. So don't think, I better than I'm old people, them jumping up and down. Oh, no, 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 no. You're just doing it in a different way. You're just disobeying the word of God in a different way. You're passively disobeying the word. So the pertinent question that we need to answer and to ask and to answer is this. Am I, as a member of the incredible body of Christ, am I using my spiritual gift for the good of God's people and for the glory of the triune God? If you're not, if I'm not, then we are committing the same sin that the Corinthians were committing, only from a different perspective. And we need to heed the, exp- the exhortation, I believe, of Paul to Timothy. And he said, according to the King James Version, to stir up the gift that is within you. The New American Standard says, do not neglect the spiritual gift within you. Read that passage with me, please. This is God speaking to you. Do you have the courage to read it? Let me hear you. Selah. Think and act on these things.